Well, this morning's message, as you can see on your bulletin, is titled Sola Fide, Sola Fide, Faith Alone. And faith alone is what we'll be looking at. And and as a way of uh, introducing faith alone, faith alone, I want to take you back to 1994. In 1994, I was a junior in high school. As a junior in high school, what the events that I'm about to share with you had absolutely nothing to do, or nothing on my radar. I wanted nothing to do with these things. They were something that was going on in the world that I should have been paying attention to, but my mind, uh, running as a heathen at that time, was not interested in these things. There was a couple of groups that were getting together in 1994. The Evangelicals and the Catholics got together. They called it Evangelicals and Catholics Together, ECT. The purpose was the Christian mission for the third millennium. That was their tagline, the Christian mission for the third millennium. And they produced a 26-page document asserting the unity of mission for both Christians, evangelical and Catholic. It was signed by Roman Catholics and evangelicals alike. And among the evangelicals, you might know some of these names that signed this document with the Roman Catholics were Pat Robertson, J.I. Packer, Oz Guinness, and Chuck Colson. Unity of mission was their aim. Uniting Catholics and evangelicals. And one way of doing this is in their declaration, they decided to put the words in their declaration, justification is by faith. Well, that's wonderful. Each side keeping their own private definitions of what that means to themselves. But what is missing in that declaration? Justification is by faith. What, what is missing? Do we agree with the Roman Catholic Church understanding of justification is by faith? For R.C. Sproul, the absence of the word alone was stark and to him most distressing and further totally inadequate. Can we unite with people who hold a different doctrine, a different gospel than what's been preached? Shouldn't we contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, as we read in the book of Jude? The month of October is Reformation celebration. Reformation celebration returned to the fundamentals of Christianity, the essentials and the basics. It's so important that we get three components of Christianity right. I think what was missing from ECT, from that declaration that was made that Sproul had a problem with, was one of these three. The three components of Christianity to defend at all costs. Because all heretical groups across all time will make their attacks on one of these three areas. These three areas are scripture, Scripture, that we have a canon of Old Testament and New Testament books, 66 of them, that they are inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. If they don't attack, self, or if they don't attack Scripture, they'll attack salvation. They'll come, over, they'll come after the order of salvation. They'll presume that man is not totally depraved, and they'll undermine the grace, the size of the grace of God, They'll undermine by believing that humans have inherently in them some form of righteousness that just needs to manifest itself over a period of time. If they're not attacking Scripture and salvation, heretics will attack the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who we know are co-equal, co-eternal, three persons, one nature, Christ perfectly being fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. Attacks against these Critical components of the faith have been seen early in Christianity. You can go back to the first century where you see the Judaizers. And what were the Judaizers doing? 
They were saying that Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to participate in salvation, thereby adding a work to salvation. The second century brought in the Gnostics, and the Gnostics said that Jesus did not come in literal human flesh, thus denying the deity of Christ, denying an element of the Trinity. The third group I'd point out to you is the Arians of the fourth century. They outright denied the Trinitarian nature of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then just to round off a short little list, the Pelagians of the fifth century, who denied the effectual work of God's grace and salvation, thus undermining not only the order of salvation, but the grace of God the Father. Incredibly, after all of these heresies have been denounced from church council to church council, century after century, incredibly, these ideas still have representatives in our community today. The Seventh-day Adventists and the Roman Catholics continue to, to repeat the first century heretical views of the Judaizers. Mormons don't care to look at the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. These guys follow the second century heretics, the Gnostics. And then we have our Jehovah's Witnesses. They make a blatant denial of the Trinity and follow the errors of the fourth century Arians. Defeating error has always called for an explicit focus on Scripture. Heretics must always warp and distort the Scripture to create their false religious system. And on this point, the Roman Catholic Church was confronted in the 16th century. From within, I would remind you, by a monk named Martin Luther. Now, Luther wasn't the first to confront Roman Catholicism and their heretical views. You can go back to Peter Waldo in the 13th century. And, and after his attack, his people would come after him. They would name themselves or be called the Waldensians. And they would push Roman Catholic doctrine in places that it didn't want to be pushed. And they would try to crush the Waldensians. After Waldo and the Waldensians, you get John Wycliffe in the 14th century. And as was mentioned last week, his, the people that he was, uh, had follow him, they took up the banner of the Lollards. That was their name. After Wycliffe and the Lollards, you get John Huss in the 15th century, John Huss and the Hussites. And you'll remember all too well that John Huss was burned at the stake for his faith. Well, praise to the Lord, he would raise up Martin Luther and invent the printing press, allow it to be invented at the same time, and we would watch the message of the gospel move farther and faster and wider in the ways of reform than it ever had been. And scripture alone would be the answer. It could be trusted. It was a sole authority. Every human being has an authority formula. I would think about this with me. Every human being having an authority of formula. How many today have this formula for authority? Me plus science equals authority. Many, right? Well, in the Middle Ages, it was the Roman Catholic formula. And the Roman Catholic formula bore down over that medieval period. And it was scripture plus tradition equals authority. This formula found an enemy in Martin Luther and the reformers of the 16th century. They, they sought to question the necessity of the papal authority. R.C. Sproul says the Reformation had two chief causes, two chief causes, a formal cause and a material cause, a cause of substance. The formal cause was sola scriptura. We addressed this last week, sola scriptura, scripture alone as the ruling authority. The defense from scripture about its own authority are seen in two big verses in the New Testament. You'll remember those well if you remember Second Peter 1.20 and 21. 
and 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God. Further, in defeating the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, there was the material cause, the material cause, this cause of substance. It would need to be addressed. What was the material cause? R.C. Sproul says, Martin Luther came to the conclusion that the central issue was sola fide. Luther himself saying that sola fide is the article with and by which the church stands and without which it falls. Sola fide is the response to the question so greatly vexing Martin Luther for the great duration of his early years. The question that he couldn't answer. The question that we need to ponder this morning. How can a man be justified before a holy God? For Luther and the reformers, the only answer was sola fide, by faith alone. And yet in saying these words, for this man at this time, the consequence was death. Just like Huss before him, Luther was promised and nearly guaranteed death. This issue is incredibly divisive, and rightly so. Rightly so, because the salvation of men is at stake. Can you be a true church of Jesus Christ and have salvation all wrong. Paul says in Galatians 1.9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And I would remind you that in verse 9, that's the second time he said accursed. He said it again just prior to that. The Roman Catholic Church in, in the Council of Trent with Canon 9 and Canon 12 from the Council of Trent, they spoke their own curses. One saying, uh, uh, they spoke their curses on anyone who was saying that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. You can look that up for yourself. Canon 9 and Canon 12 from the Council of Trent. They did that in response to Martin Luther. And I would ask you the question today, what is your response? How do you answer the question, how is a man justified before God? Is there a material, fundamental difference between the Roman system and biblical Christianity? Are you able to distinguish your faith from the Roman system or any other man-created system? Are you able to distinguish your faith? How is a man justified before God? This is the question of the hour. We'll look at it to answer definitively how a man can be justified before God. You're going to find the answer. It's right there on your bulletin, the title of the message, Sola Fide. That's the answer to the question. But we have to ask, how do we get there? We can understand justification before God by doing two things. And this is what I like to do this morning. I like to go back and take a look at the person in the life of Martin Luther and try to understand what was going on in his mind at the time of the Reformation that he would read through Scripture and come to the conclusions and the answers that he did. Secondly, I'd like to look into the Scriptures where all truth is found. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, where the answer will become plain to us. So first, just by way of introduction, join with, join with me, and we're just going to think about Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther, born in 1483 in Eisleben, Germany, to parents of peasant stock. His father ultimately would come to... Uh, get hold of a mining business and be the owner of a mining business and he would move to the middle class. His father would pray for him nightly. He wanted him to have a good education, to be a lawyer and ultimately to be his father's retirement plan. Several instances in, in his life would help us to understand the culture though that he lived in and how it shaped his thoughts. 
Medieval times and the influence of the Roman Catholic system had monstrous effects on humanity. This was part of the reason why the Enlightenment period stands out so markedly in the course of human history and Western history. These instances in Luther's life will shed light on his struggle and on his culture. And the first instance I want to bring to your mind is, the, is that of the lightning strike. You guys know this story? He was enrolled in the University of Erfurt in Germany from 1501 to 1505. It was summertime. It was July in 1505, and he was headed home to Eisleben. And he was caught in a thunderstorm. And this good Catholic boy caught in a thunderstorm riding home, a lightning bolt strikes right nearby. And it caused him to call out, Help, Anna, beloved saint! I will become a monk. Anna was the patron saint of mining, and so he called out on her name. And ultimately, he would make good on that promise. After 14 days, just to consider his hasty and superstitious vow, he would join one of the hardest, heaviest-handed monasteries around, the Augustinian order. You know, and just as a biblical counselor, to think through what it would be like to have someone make a life-changing decision to move in life, off of a supernatural event and a vow and a 14-day decision. I, I can't say that that would be a wise course of action. It was God's course of action for Luther, but was he a Christian at this time? The Lord was using this time to move him. But it does say something interesting about the Middle Ages, about decision-making, about society, about traditions and superstitions. I would move you to the next event in his life. There he was, a good Catholic man, a good monk inside of his Augustinian order, and he was standing before his people and he was presenting to them the body and blood of Christ. And as is the case in a Roman Catholic church, he's got to stand there and deliver the Eucharist with all kinds of prescribed words, the liturgy. And he's saying the liturgy with these elements in his hand and he just froze. He froze. And this is what he thought later and reflected on. He said this, At these words... I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. His soul was only further grieved inside the monastery as a monk. Further grief. So then his friends come along and they tell him, well, to be just before God, a man becomes right when he's doing before God the best that he can. The best that he can. So he takes that advice. And he goes on a binge of asceticism. Asceticism. That word, I'm sure, is unfamiliar to you. Asceticism is simply inflicting pain or severe self-discipline on yourself. Now, self-discipline is a good thing. But to inflict pain and severe self-discipline on yourself with the aim or the heart condition that says, I'm going to merit the favor of God, that I'm going to receive some holiness of God or some justice from God because of the infliction, is absolutely wrong. And that's what he was doing. He beat his body. He would lay in the evening on cold, hard, even often wet tile with light clothing, 
and not even a blanket. He would deny himself those things. He would fast for three days and longer. And if he was given five Hail Marys, he would just go ahead and do 15, 20, 35. Just keep it coming. I'm just going to beat myself. His extra prayers, he would ultimately say of his extremes, he would say this. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. It was I. He was the best monkery guy going at that time. He went into the monastery in great health, and he came out beaten down and badly weathered. And still, still, he couldn't buy God's favor. It only led to greater despair. Following his friend's advice, they said, confess your sins, confess your sins, go and just confess your sins. Well, he took that seriously. And for hours, he would be before his confessor, Johann von Stoppitz. He would be confessing the most idle word and the most idle thought. He would leave the room after two and a half hours and circle right back and say, on the way out the door, my heart said, I hate God even more because of the last two and a half hours. And then he would spend another two and a half hours confessing all the more sins to von Stoppitz. You can just imagine Luther there speaking to his confessor, just totally torn, broken in his sin just seeking some kind of relief from his guilt and just calling out, oh, stop it. And von Stoppitz would obviously turn to him and say, stop it. That's what he would say, which is what you would say too, right? He still, still had no relief from his guilt, no relief. Stoppitz was a good man though. Stoppitz sent Luther to Rome as a legate for the Augustinian monastery. And surely going to Rome right, the capital city, would bring all the answers that he could possibly desire because they had more relics than Wittenberg, which is where Luther was at, in Wittenberg. Well, I would just remind you that uh, at this time in Wittenberg, there were 18,000 relics in the Roman Catholic system, ranging from twigs from Moses, get this, the relics in Wittenberg, a twig from Moses' burning bush, and a tear that Jesus shed when he wept over Jerusalem. Now, if you were to go to all of the 18,000 relics in Wittenberg, and you were to make the proper prayers and offerings at each of these articles of faith, you could earn the opportunity to cancel out, get this, 1,902,202 years from purgatory of your friends, family, and relatives. But guess where Luther's getting to go? He's getting to go to Rome. He's going to go see way more relics and way more opportunities to offer confession and to receive the indulgences from doing each of these things that the Catholic Church would have him do. So off he goes. You know what he said about his trip to Rome? He said, I wish my parents were dead when I went to Rome. You know why? Because he figured that with his praying through these uh, articles, praying through these relics, that certainly in Rome he would have the opportunity to press his dead parents off through purgatory and into the eternal state with God. Hmm, What an incredible thought. So he goes to Rome. He checks out the relics. He sees what's going on there. And this is what Luther had to say about his time in Rome. He said, It is almost incredible what infamous actions are committed at Rome. One would require to see it and hear it in order to believe it. It is an ordinary saying that if there is a hell, Rome is built upon it. It is an abyss from whence all sins proceed. Rome, once the holiest city, was now the worst. 
Let me get out of this terrible dungeons. I took onions to Rome and brought back garlic. You know, there's a set of stairs that they had brought in from Jerusalem to Rome. And Christ had climbed these stairs. And the idea was that if you climb these stairs, like Christ climbed these stairs on all fours and make your way up, that you would immediately expunge somebody from purgatory. And Luther, he's climbing on these stairs and he just stops in mid-stride. And he thinks to himself, who knows whether any of this is true? Just still so guilt-stricken. No help to any of these questions. Von Stoppitz, I mentioned, was a good man. He pointed Luther in the right direction. He urged him to go back to school. Get your doctorate degree. Come back and teach theology at Wittenberg. What I've been doing, you do it. You, you take over from me. You'll find the answers in the Bible. And Luther began to read seriously. His studies did have an effect on his life. And then he began teaching in Wittenberg himself, lecturing in the Psalms. And by 1515, he was lecturing in Romans. And he got to Romans 1, 17. Turn in your Bibles right there. If you're in chapter 3 right now, turn over to 1, 17. And as you look at 117, think these thoughts through with me as we think about Luther's life and the guilt that he's heaping up and the society in which he's living. In 117, he's staring at the righteousness of God, desperately wanting to understand what Paul meant. He took it to mean God's justice in judging the unjust, almost in track there with verse 18, right? God's justice in judging the unjust. That God was a just and angry God. That's how Luther felt about him. But consider his Bible at the time. What Bible is Luther reading from? What Bible dominated the Catholic Church? The Latin Vulgate. It was written by Jerome in the 4th century, over a thousand years before. This presents us with a bit of a dilemma or a challenge in understanding Luther's problem. You know, even at, at this time of the Enlightenment, humanism, not the humanism of today, but the humanism of the Enlightenment period was good. They were looking to go back and understand the authorial intent of the writers who were writing in the Greek and Hebrew. And so they went back to the Greek and Hebrew and they were grabbing this and they were trying to understand what's the historical grammatical context. They had good hermeneutics and they had a good idea. That was a good thing that, the, that uh, humanism and the Enlightenment brought. These things helped Luther and they really helped Melanchthon, Luther's cohort, to really put together an understanding of this. But look at the language here. Okay? Think about if you're holding a Latin Vulgate in your hand. And I would ask you the question, do languages change over time? Do languages change? Do meanings of words in languages change? For instance, for instance, in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, you know this very well, these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. Right, love. Okay, so somebody in here inevitably was reading a King James Version. And if your King James Version didn't say love, there's, a, there's another word that it said. You know what it said? Charity. It says charity. Okay, so charity in 1611 when the King James was written might that have been something that was valuable to that context? Could that work in that setting? Obviously it did, because the King James lasted for some 400 plus years. Still around today. So there's something to the idea of that translation that works. But in English, we much better understand the direct translation, love. If you look at verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 17, the Greek word here has a noun and a verb form, and the root word is dikaio. And it means a condition acceptable to God, righteousness, justice, virtue, or integrity. Your translation probably, right now, rightly has righteousness of God. And that's helpful for your English translation. Would you be helped if verse 17, if righteousness was replaced with justice, particularly in light of the 
in light of verse 18, where it talks about the wrath of God? Here's Luther's dilemma. The Latin version, the Latin Vulgate, has in 117 the word justice, because at that time that was the right translation. For Luther, the justice of God, though, the justice of God is the wrath of God. And God is a wrathful God, not only in the Bible, but culturally as well. What happens to you when you're stuck under a system of works? What happens to you when a bully takes your lunch money? You think about this? What happens when a bully takes your lunch money? You're going to show up at school the next day, and what do you feel? What do you feel? Fear. You feel fear. And in the Roman Catholic system, what did you feel before God? What if we explain that, Ru- that Luther was feeling all his life? Fear. Yes, I did just equate the Roman Catholic Church with a bully. They are the neighborhood salvation bully. That's what they are. They bully in the same way that Chicago mob bosses bully local business owners, making them pay for safety and protection. It looks the same in Mexican cartels or Los Angeles street gangs or even global warming advocates of our day. Create your own understanding of reality, demand by force or threat compliance to your reality, and then extract money from those uh, when their estimation of reality doesn't match yours. The medieval culture was ruled by fear. And to this, you add famine, you add disease, and you add the black death that came in the 14th century. You know how many people that killed? The black death that covered Europe, killed 75 million to 200 million people. Can you imagine what that would be like in a society? Would you feel like you were near the wrath of God? That was just 100 years before Luther's time. Luther said this. He said, although I was a holy and irreproachable monk, my conscience was full of trouble and anguish. I could not bear the words, justice of God. I loved not the just and holy God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret rage against him and hated him because not satisfied with terrifying his miserable creatures already lost by their original sin. With his law and his miseries of life, he still further increased our torment by the gospel. You know what's interesting is that Luther was in an Augustinian monastery and he didn't even have the faith of the founder of the order of his monastery. Let's go back and think about Augustine's faith. What faith did Augustine have? Did Augustine have faith in salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone? Listen to Augustine on justification. Augustine said this, If Abraham was not justified by works, how was he justified? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham then was justified by faith. Paul and James do not contradict each other, Good works follows justification, end quote. And the man who wrote Luther's Latin Bible, Jerome, what did Jerome think about justification? He said this, We are saved by grace rather than works, for we can give God nothing in return for what he has bestowed on us. He said further this, he said, You have received by faith alone the Holy Spirit, who is not received except by the righteous, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Likewise, also for you, faith alone suffices as righteousness. Faith alone. Boy, that word alone matters, doesn't it? And the Lord was gracious to Luther. 
Luther did come to understand justification just like Augustine and just like Jerome. He would later say this, but when by the power of the Spirit of God I I comprehended these words, when I learned how the sinner's justification proceeds from the pure mercy of the Lord by means of faith, then I felt myself revived like a new man and entered and opened doors into the very paradise of God. For from that time also, I beheld the precious sacred volumes with new eyes. I went over the Bible and collected a great number of passages which taught me what the work of God was. And as I had previously with all my heart hated the words of God, justice of God, so from that time I began to esteem and to love them as words most sweet and most consoling in truth these words were to me the true gate of paradise. That's where we want to go today. We want to go to the gate of paradise. We want to go to justification by faith alone. Faith alone is the gospel of Jesus Christ explaining how a man can stand justified before a holy God. We call this sola fide, faith alone. And this is what we want to consider for this morning. Where does this term come from? Where biblically can we find the answer to this equation that we have? Faith alone plus grace alone in Christ alone equals justification. We can find it right there in Romans. Romans chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there. Back to Romans 3. We're going to look at 21 through 26. Just by way of context, I would mention that Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. He's in his third missionary journey, and Paul wanted this letter to impact a church that was growing but had not received apostolic instruction at this point. And at this point of our reading, 321, Paul's two and a half chapters into establishing just how wretched, vile, and wicked the state of humanity actually is. We call this total depravity. He concludes there that there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even by the works of the law will flesh be justified. But even in calling out humanity for who they are, dead in their trespasses and sins, Paul wants to do this. Paul wants to share the good news of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And that's what this section of scripture is going to do for us. Please read with me from the text. 321. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please hold on to the idea in your mind of the gift of grace. Paul offers this to us, and it will serve to help us outline this morning as we walk through this passage. Also, did you see the salvation equation in the text? It's right there. Every time you see the word through, it's like an equal sign. 
It's so clear. We'll get to it. But let's use a simple outline for this morning. We're going to look at the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. And there's four things that we need to understand about the gift of righteousness through this text. The gift of righteousness presented. The gift of righteousness unwrapped. The gift of righteousness revealed. And finally, the gift of righteousness displayed. So first, the gift of righteousness presented. But just a couple observations before we do that. Did you see the theme of the passage? How many times was the word, were the words righteousness of God stated in that passage? Four times, four times. Clearly, that's the theme of this passage. The actions that go with the righteousness of God, the actions are these. Manifesting, demonstrating, and displaying. So that's what we want to do, right? The righteousness of God manifested. That's what we're after. And then you'll see the components of our equation. You'll see faith in Jesus Christ, justification, and grace of God. But let's start with this point one in your notes, the gift of righteousness presented. Read with me the text again from verses 21 and 22. The gift of righteousness presented. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So what's going on right here? What's going on here is the gift of God's righteousness is being manifested. That's our main verb, right? Manifested. It's being presented or shown to the world. This would be very much like a a new bride who's got a wedding ring on her finger and she's manifesting it. She's presenting it. She's displaying it to those who would ask about her wedding and her vow and her commitment with her husband. But now reminds us that we are moving into a discussion. The discussion has been going on. And so, but now takes us into a new direction. And Paul says, but now, he's trying to move away from the works of the law. Here Paul is saying, apart from the works of the law, God's righteousness is going to be revealed. This is how the righteousness of God will be revealed. And then there are a couple of witnesses to this process. The witnesses, God says, are the law of God and the prophets. The law of God and the prophets. They bear witness continually. And they manifest now and always the righteousness of God. What is the word even doing in this sentence? The word even is trying to specify or clarify and even further define the righteousness of God. The word even is saying, moreover, the righteousness of God seen through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you see the equation? The righteousness of God through Faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God equals faith in Jesus Christ. That's the equation. The word through is acting like an equal sign. It's equating the righteousness of God, one aspect of it, one facet of it, to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize how much you need this equation for the rest of your life? You need this equation to defend your faith. It's so simple. If you can add two plus two and get four... If you know that red plus yellow equals orange, then you can understand this equation. You can also then understand the mind of God and the mind of Paul who's presenting this to us. God's righteousness is manifested even though something so simple as faith is right there. But it's not blind faith. It's not blind faith, right? It's a faith that has an object. And what's the object of this faith? Jesus Christ. This is the gift of God presented. It is presented now on the pages of Scripture... And it was presented to the original audience in Rome when they read the letter. 
But look, look back at what it says. For all those who believe, right? That's part of the text. For all those who believe. It was actively underway at the time that Paul was writing this. Faith in Jesus Christ was available. Faith in Jesus Christ was being manifested. It was actively happening. And the text says it's for those who believe. Everybody had been receiving this gift who was in the church. What joy. What a blessing to know that these people had come to the gates of paradise and then brought in through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gift of God presented. We'll move to point two in your notes. The gift of righteousness unwrapped. The gift of righteousness unwrapped. And as it works out, there's a, there's a bit of a wrapper around this present. It's, it's like as you've, got a, you've got a birthday present that has come from someone who has wrapped your, your birthday present in newspaper. And you, you need to tear this newspaper wrapping off. And so we're going to tear this newspaper wrapping off. Read with me in verse 22. This is a reminder of Paul, of where you came from, right? In verse 22, Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. There's the wrapper. It's true. It's necessary. We need the reminder, right, that we are all sin-filled. We have all fallen short. And it sure helps us when we're trying to understand the justification and grace of God to see how short we fall. But what's this word distinction? What's he talking about with the word distinction? Well, if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, just look back over at verse 9, he says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. You've got Jews being saved into Christianity. You've got Christians being saved into Christianity who are Greek. So you've got the Jews and the Greeks. And what Paul's saying is, There is no distinction in Christianity. No distinction. There's no distinction of race. There's no distinction of color. There's no distinction of socioeconomic status. In Christianity, there is no distinction because all believers in Jesus Christ have one common uniting factor prior to their salvation. Do you know what that is? What's common with all of us? Paul tells us in verse 23. Go ahead and look at 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's speaking about believers here. That's you and I. It's important for us to remember that no one has ever pleased God. No one has ever brought God glory. No one has ever honored God in whose image they have been made. That is why Paul quotes David in Psalm 14.1 when David said, There is none righteous, no, not one. We call this total depravity. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Nothing righteous exists inside of you. You have no opportunity to merit God's favor. We're talking about unmerited favor. Be mindful. This is a major point of contention with Rome and many other religions. You've got to ask yourself the question, does man have in him inherent righteousness that just needs time and course to be able to build up enough speed to merit the full righteousness of God? Or... Must man get righteousness imputed to him? Inherent righteousness or imputed righteousness? You want to write those ones down and take those with you. Paul is about to make the case for the imputation of righteousness, which we'll see next. Paul is going to show us how the gift of God and the power of God justify the totally depraved man. So point three in your notes, the gift of righteousness opened. Boy, and this is where we get right into the meat of this this text. There is some glory going on here that Paul has for us. 
Read with me the words starting in verse 24. These ones, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of big Christian words going on here. Propitiation, redemption, justification, grace of God. It's all there. It's right here, 24, 25. This is meat. In order to really help out with this section, I just decided that I would need to paint a picture for you. I need to paint a picture that will help make sense of what's going on here. And this was a picture given to me by a friend of mine. His name's Dan. And it was when I was becoming a Calvinist, moving from an Arminian understanding of of Christianity to to Calvinism. And this picture really stuck with me, and I want to offer it to you today. The picture is best understood in light of total depravity. And the picture is this. You're cold, wet, and your discarded body is in a stone floor cell, pitch black, you are laying on the floor, chained to a bed, you are lifeless. In an instant, the door is burst open, and you are standing in glorious light, dry, warm, clothed, chainless, staring into the face of God, and even as Martin Luther would put it, at the gates of paradise. This is just a picture, but it'll help as we move through an explanation of this verse. It effectively captures all the elements of this passage. We can start first with the idea of being justified. Being justified, which is right there at the end of the picture, standing in the presence of God, justified, full of life, no sin, no shame, no guilt, cleansed, and feeling the radiant warmth of true love. This is the result of justification. But what is justification? The word itself, justification is to be rendered righteous, being shown or exhibited to be righteous, being declared or pronounced righteous. And I would ask you the question, who has the right to make that kind of declaration? God alone has the right to make that kind of declaration. This happens in a moment, this declaration of justification, because it is a declaration by God. Remember what Martin Luther said. He said this, I felt myself revived like a new man and entered at open doors into the very paradise of God. Kevin DeYoung says, justification is God's declaration that we, though guilty sinners, are righteous in God's eyes. Friends, it is a legal declaration. It is a forensic declaration. It has massive implications. It results as an immediate change to one's legal status before God. God alone is able to make this declaration. And there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty to that. Because if you could make your own declaration, if you could put up enough works and do enough works through the course of life to build up the opportunity to make your own declaration or own claim or status to righteousness, then you know what? You could also fumble and lose your declaration. 
but the idea of God being the one who makes the declaration. Do we have a God who is changeable or unchangeable? He is unchangeable. So when he makes the declaration, it is permanent. It is finished. And it is with you for all of eternity. You don't want to make your own declaration. You don't want to build up merit. You want the grace of God. And that's what this passage says. It says that God alone is able to legally declare you righteous in his sight if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Peter said, For there is no salvation in any other. For there is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which men must be saved. How can God accomplish this legal declaration? By redemption, that's how. But redemption, which is only in Jesus Christ. Well, what is redemption? Redemption is a releasing affected by a payment of ransom. What did, what did I just say? Deliverance. Redemption is deliverance. Redemption is this. It's liberation procured by a payment. Because of your sin, you should still be in that cell. You should still be on the floor dead. But, be, but the cell door was made to swing wide open. In fact, you could say that the deadbolt of the door was opened by a key because someone bought the key to your cell. The price of your sin, the price of the, to ransom you from the prison of your own wicked existence was purchased. It was purchased and paid for in full by the blood of Christ. How did Jesus pay for the key to your cell? How did Jesus pay my debt for my sins? No, the, the best opportunity to explain this to you really is just to read Isaiah 53. I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah 53. How did Jesus get the key to your cell? But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Verse 12. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You and me. Jesus perfectly met the righteous standard of God. Propitiation is this. Propitiation is appeasement. It is atonement. It is reconciliation on God's terms. And what are God's terms? Hebrews 9.22 says this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.26 says this. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Romans 5.19 then can make this declaration. Through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through the obedience of the one. This was the plan of God from all time. Jesus perfectly completed his part in order that the righteousness of God would be manifested through his sacrifice. And I would make note of this. This was a particular atonement. 
This was a limited atonement, which is to say Christ fully paid for all who would be saved. Those whom God has elected or foreordained, predestined, God's sacrifice through Christ pays for each of those specifically. He submitted his will to the Father, and he received that wrath from the Father which would cover the payment of the sins of those elect. Then he gave up his life and he died. And three days later, Jesus beat death. Jesus endured the full wrath of God. And then on the third day, he beat death. This is the Savior that you want. The one who can sustain himself under the wrath of God and then beat human death. Faith in this message is equal to the righteousness of God. Faith in this message will bring redemption from sin, imputation of righteousness, and a permanent legal declaration from God of your justification in his sight. Hopefully the picture helps you understand that propitiation is Jesus buying the keys to the door of your cell. Redemption is Jesus bursting into the room, cutting off your chains and reviving your life, cleansing you and clothing you in his righteousness. And these things are experienced for you in a moment. In a moment you are justified and you stand at the gates of paradise. You stand justified before God in a moment. God's love is a component of his grace. God's grace made all of this possible. This is God's gift of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This, friends, this, this is the great exchange, right? The great exchange. He takes our sin to him and then he gives to us his righteousness. These are the gifts of God opened up so clearly by Romans 3:24 and 25. God chose to give this gift to those he had foreordained, predestined and chosen. How beautiful is this? God's plan, so glorious. The passage though continues and there's a fourth point in your notes this morning, the gift of righteousness displayed because what are we after here we're after god manifesting displaying his his righteousness his glory it will be on display read with me from verse 25 the gift of righteousness displayed this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of god he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration i say of his righteousness at the present time Two times in this passage, you get the word demonstration of righteousness. And then you need to hold a few thoughts together. You need to hold together a few thoughts as we think about the demonstration of righteousness. That God is patient, right? He's, he's forbearing. We need to hold the idea that sins have not been punished. So there's unpunished sins. And we have times that were past and we have times present. So we're holding these together. So why bring up sin not punished at this point? The sins that were passed over, why bring those up at this point? What defense is Paul going to make? He's going to defend the justice of God. That's what he's going to defend. He's going to defend the justice of God. How can God justify sinful, wicked people and still be considered just himself? 
How can God do this? Justify people at one time, even now, and be consistent throughout the course of human history. How can the sins of the past be cleansed at the present time? What is consistent? You know, it it just seems to many that something has changed. And if something has changed, then God has changed. But God is unchangeable. So we need to explore this. Let's look at this. First, let me ask you the question. Is it right for God to pass over sins for any length of time? Is it right for God to pass over sins for any length of time? The answer to that question is yes, because he passed over your sins. Some for 60, some for 30, some for 10 years, he passed over your sins. And he passed over David's sins and he passed over Abraham's sins. Did he absolve those sins? Did he clear those sins? Were those sins paid for? Well, 2,000 years ago, they were paid for. They were paid in full. Second, what is the common criteria that holds the present and the past to be consistent? How can God not be charged with changing his ways of salvation? How can God not be charged with that? Well, because the common criteria is consistent. And the common criteria is what? Faith. The common criteria is faith. The common criteria has always been that God has spoken. He spoke in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, and they did not obey. He spoke to Abraham, and Abraham believed. He spoke to David, and David believed. And 2,000 years ago, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word of God spoke. And the Word of God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now your opportunity and your obligation is to have faith in that message, that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, the Father. God has always put out his word, and God has always expected obedience to it. Either men believed unto righteousness and life and peace, or they didn't believe, and it led to their death. And so God is perfectly just by having always had a perfect and consistent means of salvation. Men must have faith in the word of God. And through Jesus Christ, God is more than just. As we read in the passage, we get to the so that. In verse 26, there's a so that. So that he, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In this, we see that God is more than just. In this, we see that God is also your justifier. He's your justifier. God fully accepts the works of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' works included receiving the wrath of God for sin. God's wrath has been perfectly satisfied by Jesus. Did you hear that? A man in flesh who was also fully God was able to perfectly receive the wrath of God so that you don't have to. Man, that's that's good news. Faith is required though. Faith in Jesus is required. As the justifier... God is so pleased through Christ to be able to redeem you from your sins and to impute to you the righteousness of Christ that you did not have. Righteousness is imputed to people who are totally depraved. That's where you stand, justified in the presence of God. And this is where Martin Luther found himself, at the gates of paradise with his sin debt paid, redemption, and being justified. And I would just have you go back to that picture in your mind that we painted earlier. Propitiation is the key. Jesus Christ's death, purchasing, the opportunity to get the key to the cell. 
Redemption is the doors swinging wide open. And justification is standing in the light of the glorious presence of God. The question for you today would be, do you have faith to believe that Jesus' death made propitiation for sin? Did Jesus' death merit the opportunity to give life to a whole bunch of wicked sinners? That's what he said. Did Jesus pay for all the sins of all believers? Did he pay for your sin? Did Jesus pay for your sins? If Christ paid for sins, if he made propitiation, who would he choose to redeem? Who would he choose to redeem? He would only choose to redeem those who believed in him, right? Who believed his word. Many of us here today have received the gift of grace, the gift of righteousness of God, being justified through faith alone in Christ. And I would just say, if you're one who hasn't received that message, would you please come and talk to me? I'd like to share more about this message with you. The passage brings great certainty for those who have faith. Without question, this passage inspired and prepared those Roman believers to whom the letter was written for the persecution that was quickly headed their way. And you think about an opportunity to extinguish this message. The Romans had it. But this message is a message that cannot be extinguished by human force, cunning, or any matter of human ingenuity. This passage should do for us what it did for Martin Luther. It should give us life. It is through this passage of Scripture and others like it that we can throw off a life of fear and a life of bondage to any failed system of man. Do not ever forget the simplicity of the formulas here. Every time you see the word through, just remember, it means an equal sign. You can, you can do this. Through means equal sign. And justification is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And you also need to understand that faith in Jesus Christ, to God, to Paul, faith in Jesus Christ is equal to the righteousness of God. With these equations found in Romans 3, I would say that you are well equipped to answer the question from anyone who would ask you, how can a man stand justified before a holy God? And all God's people said, sola fide. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for the justification that you have brought to us in Jesus Christ, your son. We're so thankful that his sacrifice was able to atone for our sins. We're thankful that you applied to us redemption through that sacrifice and that because of that, you're able to clothe us in Christ's righteousness. Lord, this is an incredible message. Lord, let us rejoice and celebrate in this message and share this message with all who we come in contact with that more might come unto salvation through Jesus Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. We pray these things in his name. Amen.